following messages were presented during the Friends of Israel 2009 Prophecy Conferences. It should be noted that a few of our speakers presented their messages with the aid of PowerPoint. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is a message, part 2, on the great deception. And really the great deception comes from the Antichrist who has deceived many people throughout the world. And in Ephesians, it tells us that we are not to give place to the devil. And we have to guard our own lives. Well, we're going through this chapter. There are 17 verses in the chapter, and we looked at verses 1 through 7 last night. So we're going to focus on verses 8 through 17 in this hour. And just a little bit of a review before we proceed through the chapter. You'll remember that Paul went to Thessalonica with Silas and they established a church there in three weeks, taught many, many good doctrines on prophecy, talked about the rapture, taught about the day of the Lord, and taught about God's wrath that was to come. And you'll remember that some had come in with a different message after Paul left concerning the day of the Lord and that the day of the Lord was there then and present at that time and the people were shaken and troubled by the word that they were getting. And whether it was through the spirit or through the word or through a false or pseudo epistle, uh, Paul warned them that they should not be listening to such things. And he told them that the day of the Lord had not come, and he was trying to assure this church that they were not in the time of the tribulation. And as we said last night, the apostle Paul also told them that this day would not come until four things took place. First, there had to be the rapture of the church. And then there would be the falling away or the apostatizing. And I said last night that apostasy really is one who professes uh, to believe in Jesus. They have all the knowledge they need, but they're not really possessors of salvation, just pro uh, professing to have that and that they will fall away in the latter times, I believe, starting uh, in the church age, just before the tribulation begins, but really being manifested after the tribulation has begun. And then that the Antichrist would be revealed, the Antichrist would be revealed, and he makes a covenant with the nation of Israel, and that's found in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And that will begin the seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel, seven years of tribulation. And then the restrainer will be removed uh, after the church is raptured away. Doesn't mean the restrainer will be taken out of the world, as some believe. It means that his restraining power will be not manifested during the Great Tribulation. And the lawlessness will, through the man of sin will be manifested during that time. 
The Holy Spirit is still in the world, but not manifesting himself as in the day of grace that we are living in the church age at this time. Now there are three points that we want to see this morning. We want to look at the deceiver and those who are deceived and those who are delivered from this type of deception. So first of all, the deceiver, and uh, the deceiver is none other than the Antichrist. And uh, we're told in verse uh, 6, And now ye know what uh, restraineth that he might be revealed in his time. And the revealing of the Antichrist will be in his time. So what is being mentioned here is the Antichrist. Now what does the term Antichrist mean? The word Antichrist comes from two Greek words. One is anti, which means uh, against or instead of, and then the word uh, Christos, which is Christ in, in the Greek language. Christos is the Greek, uh, Christ is the English, and Mashiach or Messiah is the Hebrew word. So it means one who is against Christ or instead of Christ, and he is going to be uh, coming forth during the time of the tribulation. Now in 1 John chapter 2, verse number 18, John writes, Ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. He mentions that a man that is identified as the Antichrist is going to come. And in our text here, uh, verse 3, he's called the man of sin or the lawless one. He's going to be the embodiment of sin. He's also called in verse 6, the son of perdition or destruction. That means he is going to uh, be one who brings total destruction with his uh, philosophy and his ideologies and his working. In uh, verse 8 of our text, he's called the wicked one, meaning he's the personification of wickedness. So there is a man who's coming on the stage. Now there's also in uh, our day, and there's going to be at that time, a spiritual system. In 1 John chapter uh, 4, verse 3 tells us there's going to be a spiritual uh, 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 system that is an antichrist system that's going to permeate the whole world during that time. And those who do not believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, they are part of this uh, spiritual antichrist uh, system. So uh, there's a definite man that's coming on the world stage, and there is a spiritual system that is coming. Now, he's going to have devastating power, as is brought out in verse 9. It says here in our text, whose coming is after the working of Satan. He's going to be Satan's man, this Antichrist person. And um, he's going to have great power. I won't take time to turn there, but over in Revelation chapter 13, 2, 
it tells us that the dragon, and the dragon is none other than Satan. Anytime you see dragon mentioned in the book of Revelation, it's referring to Satan. The dragon's going to give him his power, his throne, and it says great authority. Just not authority, but great authority. And... Uh, He's going to have this devastating power as well because he's going to have power over the whole world. Revelation chapter 13 verse 7 says that he's going to have power over all kindred, tongues, and nations. And he is not going to recognize any type of power except his own power. We're told this in Daniel chapter 11 verse 38 that he's going to honor the God of fortresses and power. That's the picture that's being painted there. Now, his really, his, really his reign is not going to last that long upon the earth because in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5, we're told that he rules 42 months or three and a half years. So uh, this person is going to have great power from Satan. Uh, Satan's going to energize him and give him what he needs to perform all of his wickedness and to uh, really glean a following around him on earth. Now when he comes forth, as I said, he's not going to recognize any god but the god of powers, but he's going to deny the true and living God. And we see that in verse 4 here of 2 Thessalonians 2. Uh, he is uh, going to be a person who revolts against any God that's being manifested that time, for the word says, who opposes all that is called God. And uh, verse number uh, six in Revelation chapter 13, going back to that chapter, it tells us that he is going to blaspheme God's name, his tabernacle, and those who are in heaven. He's going to blaspheme God. He's going to blaspheme God's dwelling place. He's going to blaspheme uh, all of us as well because we at that time are going to be in heaven uh, we've been raptured away, we're in the presence of the Lord, and we're very much alive, and he's going to blaspheme all those who believe in God. And it goes on to say here in uh, verse number 4, coming back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says that he's going to exalt himself above God. Uh, not only is he going to deny God and do these things, but he's going to really desecrate not only God's name, but uh, he's going to desecrate uh, uh, worship here on the earth. For it says in verse number four, as God, he sitteth in the temple of God. Now what uh, temple is this referring to? Well, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, uh, there is the abomination of desolation mentioned by Daniel the prophet. And the idea here is that a Jewish temple is going to be uh, rebuilt upon the earth. And for a better name, we'll just call it the tribulation temple at that time. 
There have been uh, two temples in Israel's history. There's been Solomon's temple. There's been Zerubbabel's temple that started the second temple period. Uh, Herod uh, the Great came on the scene, and in 20 B.C., he leveled uh, Zerubbabel's temple and started to expand the temple uh, in Jerusalem, and he expanded it to 35 acres, and uh, it was known as Herod's Temple. It was begun in 20 B.C., wouldn't be completed until 64 A.D. That was 84 years in the building of it, and um, then in 70 A.D. it was destroyed. Well, there hasn't been a temple since 70 A.D. in Israel, but there is going to be a third temple built during the time of the tribulation. And uh, Jewish people will have the sacrificial system again. They'll worship in that temple. But when the Antichrist breaks the covenant he's made with Israel that we mentioned in Daniel 9.27, then he's going to come into Jerusalem, take over the city, and take over that temple and he's going to desecrate it with his presence. He's going to desecrate it in three ways. One way he's going to desecrate it, he, a Gentile, coming into a Jewish temple, desecrating the temple. A second way he's going to desecrate that temple is that an image is going to be put up by the false prophet. Revelation chapter 13, verse 15 mentions this. And... Uh, the people of the world are going to be made to bow down and worship this image. And then it says here in verse 4 of our text that he's going to sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So you see, Satan always wanted worship, and he's going to try to get the world to worship him through this Antichrist figure who is going to literally desecrate the temple in these three ways. And he says, it says here in verse 4 that he's going to claim deification by showing himself as God. Verse 8 uh, mentions the destruction of the Antichrist, and it says here, that the Lord shall consume him with the spirit of his mouth. You know, the Lord spoke all of creation into being. In six days he spoke and he created what we call ex nihilo. Latin term means out of nothing. Can you imagine uh, not having anything and all of a sudden speaking and it comes forth? Well, God did that. Not only, is powerful, not only is the word of God powerful to create, but the word of God is also powerful to destroy. You remember at Armageddon, at the second coming of the Lord, we're told in, in Revelation 19.15 that a sharp two-edged sword goes forth from his mouth, and with it he smites the nation. He just speaks the word and he destroys them. Well, the Antichrist is going to be destroyed by the word of the mouth, from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord is going to consume him with the spirit of his mouth. And then the destiny of the Antichrist is mentioned in Revelation chapter 19, verse 20. He's cast alive, not 
dead, but alive into the lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. And so we have Paul here revealing for us the great deceiver, the one who is going to bring deception upon the world, who is the Antichrist. Well, what about those whom he deceives? He's going to deceive many, many people. In fact, there's only going to be a remnant of Jewish and Gentile people who come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. Remember I said last night in, uh, in Revelation chapter 7 that uh, the 144,000 flaming Jewish evangelists are going to preach the gospel of the kingdom throughout the world and then uh, there will be a multitude that are saved from every tongue and nation. But many of them will be uh, martyred for their faith because they will not fall lockstep in line with the Antichrist nor worship his image. Uh, but um, there are going to be many people that do follow him so that they can buy and sell. You remember that's, that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 13 verses 16 through 18. They need to take the mark of the beast so they can buy and sell. And uh, Pat Neff mentioned that yesterday in the session that he had with us. But uh, what about the deceived here? Well, in verses 9 through 12, we really see the deception that the Antichrist is going to put forth. Now, uh, in verse 9, you'll notice his coming. We've touched on this in the last point. Uh, the, his coming is after Satan, it mentions here in verse 9. You notice his character in verse 9. It's after the working of Satan. We've already mentioned this, meaning that he is energized by Satan. And he's very convincing, it says here in verse 9. All power and signs and lying wonders are going to be manifested through him. Now the word power here, the Greek word, really means miracles. And so you could put in there all miracles and signs uh, and lying wonders are going to be performed by this person. All power speaks of Satan's supernatural, miraculous working power is going to be manifested through this man. Uh, the signs, uh, his miracles will be a sign that marks his identification as the Antichrist. And wonders here is speaking at people will be astonished and awestruck by the things that he is going to be able to produce. So much so that, you know, the conclusion here would be that these spectators to the miracles and the wonders that are being manifested, they're spellbound. They have never seen anything like this in, his in their lifetime, and they are going to fall lockstep in line with him. Now, when it says here, with all power and signs and lying wonders, the word lying really uh, magnifies the the, the miracles and the signs. And so I think you could say they're all lies that he is putting forth. 
Not that they are fake, but they lead to a false conclusion about uh, who the Antichrist is. There are going to be some marvelous things that are manifested in that day that are going to just wow the people and they are going to just flow to him and want to follow after him. Now, uh, uh, we see here in verse 10, the latter part of it, Satan's deceit. It says here, with all deceivableness of unrighteousness. Remember, Satan is a deceiver, and so is going to be the Antichrist. Uh, the Word of God has uh, a lot to say concerning uh, Satan. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44. Uh, the Word said, he's a murderer, there's no truth in him, and he's the father of lies. Doesn't that speak about the Antichrist too? He's going to be a murderer, there's no truth in him, and he too is a father of lies. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, uh, Paul says that he blinds the minds of them who believe not. Uh, these people are going to walk around probably with a glaze over their eyes. They've been blinded by this person. Uh, they think he is the true one to follow, but they are total blindness in, and in darkness. And then uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, and I mentioned this last night, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. To them, he's one of light and bringing life to them. He's the one to follow. But actually, what he is bringing, he is bringing death and lying and one not to follow. Now, you say, why do we need all this and know all this? Well, Paul is telling the Thessalonians back uh, uh, 2,000 years ago that they needed to know this. And we need to know this as well so that we can warn people and they can sidestep what's coming up on the face of the earth and hopefully come to Jesus Christ. If they come to Jesus Christ, they'll be raptured away and won't have to face this. So we need to uh, sound the warning to them. Now, uh, those who really take the mark of the beast their destiny is sealed. Those who follow the Antichrist, they have no hope of salvation whatsoever. And uh, we have John mentioning this in uh, Revelation chapter 14. Let me just read some verses to you concerning those who take the mark of the beast and follow after the Antichrist. It says in verse 9, about halfway down, If any man worship the beast, his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine and the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of holy angels and in the presence 
of the Lord. And so the picture here is they are going to the lake of fire. Verse 11 goes on to explain that. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image. Whoever receiveth the mark of his name. And so what it is saying here is that their destiny is uh, uh, already secured, that they are going to the lake of fire. Now that's strong language. Uh, so in that day, those who take this mark have no hope of uh, salvation whatsoever. Now going back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and looking at verses 10 through 12, we see uh, the sinner's dilemma that is here. And uh, uh, Paul mentions what's going to happen to these who take the mark of the beast. Now, the subjects are found here in verse 10, them that perish. Paul mentions here them that perish. And actually, in the original language, this is a present active participle, as we would call it, and it means that they are in the process of already perishing. It's already begun. There's not going to be any hope for these people whatsoever. And uh, you'll notice their selection also here in verse 10. They receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, what is this saying? It's saying here they have no love for the truth. They have refused truth mentally. They have not received the truth of the gospel. They have repudiated truth in their heart in the sense they have no love for the truth, and they reject salvation with their will that they might be saved. They're indifferent to salvation. So, you know, you've heard people say, well, those who heard the gospel in the age of grace and rejected the Lord will not have a second chance to be saved or hear the gospel. They'll be lost. I don't think that's what the text is really saying. I think it's saying those who have no love for truth mentally or in their heart or reject any possibility of coming to salvation when they hear the gospel message, uh, they are going to have no truth whatsoever in them, and there's no possibility that they can be saved. And uh, you see their sentence here. In verses 11 and 12, it says, For this cause, or for this reason, because they have no love for the truth. For this reason, uh, they're going to be given delusion in verse 11. They're sent, sent strong delusion. They're going to be sent such uh, strong delusion in their mind uh, or deception that they should believe this heir of the Antichrist. They're going to think, think this is the truth, but it's actually the greatest deception that has been perpetrated upon men. It's going to be manifested at that time. Their darkness, you see here in verse 11, they believe the lie 
What is the lie they desire to follow after this one who is truly demonic and is truly in error and truly a lie? And everything he says is false. And so because they're given delusion, they're in darkness. And their decision is seen here in verse 12. They had pleasure or will pleasure themselves in unrighteousness. Well, so the picture here is if you really disbelieve the truth and you delight yourself willfully in rejecting the truth, and uh, the result is going to be that you love evil. You're going to be truly one who is manifesting the depravity of the old nature in all of its horrors during the time of the tribulation. And their damnation is mentioned here in verse 12. Uh, that all might be judged. All these people who follow after the Antichrist during the time of the tribulation, they are going to be judged, stand before the great white throne judgment as we read a few moments ago, and then cast alive, not dead, not annihilation, but alive into the lake of fire to suffer day and night. I don't know about you, but I'm terrified of what I've just read here. This is terrifying to think that this is going to be the destiny of these people who follow the Antichrist. But you know, even in this age of grace, there are people modeling this type of attitude. There are people who are modeling this. They say, don't come uh, bring that stuff by me. I don't want the truth of what you're calling the truth. There are many ways to salvation. How do you know this is the truth? They're rejecting the gospel, the gospel witness. Well, uh, this is going to happen during the time of tribulation, but this is going to happen to them even in the age of grace that we are living because they're going to manifest many of these things which we have just stated. Well, uh, there is the uh, great deceiver and the ones who are deceived, but what about the ones who are delivered? Well, in uh, verses 13 through 17, Paul now switches to a very positive message in concluding this chapter, and he talks about those who are the true believers. And it's really a blessing here when you read this. And look at verses 13 and 14 as I read. But we, and that means now we, are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth unto which he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now when you unpack all of that, that's the plan of salvation and all we have right there. There are some magnificent truth here. That's it in a nutshell of salvation that we possess. And let me just hit on some of the highlights. Paul here is 
repeating the thanks that he has for these people who have come out of paganism, idolatry, and embraced Jesus as their Savior. And in, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he gives a general thanks of them. In uh, verse 13, he says again that uh, he's thankful for their reception of the gospel. And, and then in uh, chapter 3, verse 9 of uh, 1 Thessalonians, he's saying here that he joys, the joy of his life because they've come to the Lord. So he's thankful for them. But look at the salvation or the redemption here that they have in verses 13, four, verses 14. You could preach a whole sermon on just these two verses. Listen, the compassion of God in verse 13, beloved of the Lord. They're beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ because they are the saved. Notice they are chosen by God. From the beginning chose you to salvation. The purpose of being chosen, they're part of the elect. The process is mentioned here as sanctification of the Spirit, or they've been set apart by the Spirit of Christ. And the procedure is that they believe the truth of the gospel. Oh, this is beautiful. It's wonderful how Paul so succinctly states it here. And notice they've been called by God in verse 14 to the obtaining of glory. Isn't that the end of the process of our salvation? We have been chosen, we have been called, we have been sanctified, and one day we are going to be glorified. When is that going to happen at the rapture of the church? Isn't that great? Amen. I mean, it's all right here, and it's thrilling that we're going to obtain glory. Now, Paul switches from talking about their salvation here to the responsibility that they have in verse 15. Now that you have this great salvation, what are you to do? Well, look at verse 14. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which we have been taught, whether by word or epistle. Isn't it interesting he mentions again there, word or epistle. <laughs> Uh, and he mentioned that earlier in the chapter. Now, what is he saying here? There's a responsibility. First of all, he says, stand fast. That's a present imperative command in the original uh, language. We are to stand fast and uh, in the light of what's been manifested and what we have in salvation, we are to stand fast in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we are to hold fast, not only stand fast, but notice, hold fast the tradition. What is the tradition? The teaching of the Apostle Paul. By word, by preaching, and by epistle, by letter. So we, uh, and they, and we too, we can read the preaching of the Apostle Paul, the word that he gave, and the epistles that he gave. And so not only are they to stand fast and to hold fast to the teaching of Paul, we are to do that as well. And when we do that, we are going to be strengthened in the inner man. We are going to be able to stand in the day of evil that we are living in too. And then notice the request here in verses 16 and 17 as Paul prays for them. 
Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father who hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through his grace. Wow, doesn't that say a lot? <laughs> I mean, he loves us. He loves us. He showed his love at Calvary for us. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, we have eternal consolation or covenant. We have the promise of eternal life. That's ours. And it will not be taken away for all, from all true believers who are born again. And we have a good hope, the blessings connected with the rapture. What do we call the rapture? We call that the blessed hope, don't we? It's a blessed hope because in that day we're going to be blessed when we receive our translated bodies and we are going to be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. And then notice Paul's prayer provision here. He says in verse 17, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Uh, this, is, uh, this is so great as well. And we are to reflect this out into our world with good words. The speech that we give unto others and good works. The deeds that we manifest to others. Well, there, right there you have a great chapter. This is a great chapter which is really spelling out where things are going. And he tells us, and we shouldn't be shaken. The day of the Lord is not here. There are other things that have to be taken, taken place before it comes. And we're not going to experience it. I believe Paul tells us that very clearly. So knowing that, let's stand firm. Let's uh, hold fast to what we know. And let's go out with great hope and face our world today that uh, we can stand for the Lord Jesus Christ and above all, warn our generation that they should not succumb to the wickedness but really come to Christ and put faith in him.